Thank you much, John. I thought uh, I wasn't going to come tonight because I heard there was no service. <laughs> and about 5.30, Carol says, are you dressed for what? Don didn't talk about service tonight. So I thought I'd better come over. And uh, well, I'm glad I did. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, you are braving in the weather tonight. And we look forward to hearing from the Lord. You know, I preach on Sunday night. I often think of this seminary student who was in his first year, and he was asked by a little church up in New England to come and preach on a Sunday morning because the pastor wouldn't be there that weekend. So he put his little sermon together and he was ready to go and he, the people were so enthralled. That's a great message. They said, you gotta preach tonight. <laughs> oh, I can't, I've gotta go back and all these excuses. No, 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 we don't have a preacher for tonight. He had no message. What is he going to say? Well, what we do is sometimes you preach the same message backwards. But uh, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do what my professor said. He said, when you get stuck like this, just trust the Lord. Walk up, say those first few words you want, and then wait for the Spirit to speak. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but I've had that opportunity. And you, so he walked up and he said, I'm going forward. And everyone looked at him, and they think, what is, what's, what's the message now? And he said, well, I'm going forward. And nothing else happened. So he said, I'll try one more time. And he raised up on his toes, and he said, I'm going forward. And he did. Went right over the pulpit, right onto the lap of this little lady there. And she was holding him. And he said, oh, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she said, don't worry, son. You warned me three times. <laughs> so this morning, uh, this evening, I'd like to uh, spend a few minutes look at what it means to be going forward and how we make progress and how we don't make progress and why we make progress. And I could spend a whole week on this particular parable. But I'm going to take a parable. It's in all three of the synoptics. It's in Luke. I'm going to work out of Luke chapter 8. And it's about the four soils. Uh, you've probably heard about the four soils and what happened, but I might give you a little different twist tonight on some of it. And uh, I hope that isn't just repetitive, but at least to be a reminder of how God works. And Luke, I have a little outgrowth. I don't know whether you found the little handout a little bit. Not yet. I'm going to kind of go through that pretty much, uh, maybe... Uh, skip a little bit, but I'm going to base my remarks on Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to uh, follow along with me as I start reading in verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering, the people were coming to Jesus from town after town, and he told them this parable. A farmer went out to sow the seed... As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on a rock, and when it came up, the plant withered because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than sown. So when he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that though seeing they may not see Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are those ones who receive the word with the joy and hear it 
but the joy which they hear, it goes away, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the uh, thorns stands for those who hear, but they go on their way. They are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with notable and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, persevering, producing a crop. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that you give here tonight. I know that a lot of times we read and we're not sure, but even with your disciples at times he say, Father, help us. And here again, once together tonight, I pray that as we look into the scripture, that we will hear what you want us to hear. We'll see what you want us to see. And we'll be all that you have called us to be. For I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. So when I look at the little handout, the first one, it's sower, it's not sewer. <laughs> my shelf, my spell checker didn't realize. But the sower is the farmer, or as one commentator says, any person who shares the gospel. Now if you get over into the next chapter 13, Jesus, it says the son of man was the sower. So we have different comments and different parables about who the sower is, but evidently it could be someone who wants to take the seed and plant it. And the seed is the word of God. Also in the other parables, it talks about Jesus preaching about the kingdom. So it is pertaining to God. The soil is the conditions of the heart of man. Uh, soil stands for that heart condition that what would seed of God would plant in. And the responses are four basic responses. Now, you could come up with four or five and one's in between, but we'll stick with the basic four. And as you know, a parable, as I kind of remember it, is a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. The emphasis isn't just on the physical components, but it's on the spiritual implications behind it. And that's what I hope we'll be able to look at this evening. The first soil in chapter 8, verse 11, is the hardened or closed soil. It's a soil that hears the words but it doesn't receive them. And there's three conditions here. The first one is it, there's a trampling. Now, I want to go back over to the top, verse 5, because he explains this. He doesn't explain it, but he tells us about it here. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some have fell on the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. What's it mean to be trampled on? The soil is your heart. Has your heart ever been trampled on? Anyone make you feel as if you're nothing? And you know, I think it's something to realize some people have had so much damage as children, their hearts have been trampled on so much that they're close to anything. They don't trust anybody. And in our work that we do, we call it abuse. You have physical abuse, you have emotional abuse, you have sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, and neglect. Those are the five abuses. And I think the hardening of a heart, I don't think God ever made a hard heart. Now, that's just my believing. I think every person is born with a heart that seeks God. And I read enough theologians who believe that's what God put into us, a desire to know him. 
So my question is, what keeps people, why do they have closed hearts? Who's done the trampling? And I'm just going to take a second. I wasn't going to do it, but God gave me plenty of time tonight. Uh, we do a lot in child abuse. In fact, Carol wrote the program for the Christian Missionary Alliance on Child Safety. And we've done a lot of studies of a child whose heart has been abused. And you say, well, how do you abuse a child's heart? I'm just going to talk about one, and that's emotionally. It's when you say to a child, you know, you're no good. Do you know your brother's so much smarter than you? Do you know, and you wouldn't believe parents would say that, all these negatives. For every one negative, it takes seven positives to overcome it. And even though you say you don't mean it. And so most of us have grandchildren either, and just remember how sensitive and delicate their hearts are. And I think, well, I, I think this is something God wants us to know because the most precious things in his life, along with a lot of other things, were little children. Let the little children come to me. Anyone that abuses a little child to the point, now we're talking not just two-year-olds, four-year-olds, eight-year-olds, on up into maybe preteen, who abuses them in a way that they turn away from me, it would be better if they committed suicide. Now you say, where do you say that? Well, it could be a hyperbole. Because it said, if your eye offend, you take it out. You probably don't mean that. But I think he's showing the intensity of how much he loves little children and how we have to be careful that we don't turn them away from God. He said, for anyone that does that, it would be better if you took a millstone, you know, that's great big 200, 300 pound stone you grind wheat with. We'd better if they took that, put it around their neck, and jumped in the river. That's what God thinks about how precious his little children are. And so the hardness of a heart, it comes from different things. But it's a heart that's been trampled on. Someone made the heart hardened. I remember a while ago, I was in a Walmart. And it was 5 o'clock at night, and this mother, she had a little 3-year-old, 4-year-old, in the stroller, and you could see it was five o'clock. He was hungry. He was tired. The mother wasn't finished shopping. She lost it, and she started whacking this kid. I mean, just slapping him. Tell him to shut up. I, and I went over. I, I couldn't stand it. I went over, and I gently spoke to her. I said, you've got, you've got a problem here, and maybe, you know, just try to calm her down. And she's like that in a grocery store or a place like Walmart. What would she be like at home? And she hasn't got a clue the damage she's doing. And that's one of our responsibilities that those who know, who know Christ, who know children, who know better, is to help people realize that hearts can be, hearts can be abused and people as they get older, say, I don't want a thing to do with God. I don't want a thing to do with God. So a heart's been trampled on. The second thing is birds. You know, this is interesting. The birds came and ate up the seed. Now, I don't think he's talking about a real bird. Remember, it's an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. What are the birds? Any idea? Anyone want to say, what, what are the birds that would eat up the seed? Could be friends. Someone who says, you're coming to Christ? Oh, don't go to church. You don't need that. Could be a parent that says, what? You kidding me? That, you don't believe in God, do you? Satan with Eve used a serpent. I, thought the, I think the servant walked in all four legs, all three legs, two legs, in fact, not four, two legs. Walked up like this. 
The serpent could talk. The serpent could rationalize. The serpent was crafty. The serpent did Satan's work. So when I think of birds, I think of Eve and how a serpent tricked her. And I just say that because we need to be aware that there's always birds flying around us. Maybe we've passed the stage of the receiving of the heart on the Word of God. But we're going to meet people. And you wonder, I witnessed to them, and it just blew right over their head. And part of it is because their heart is so hard, and the seed you sow, really, you say, why doesn't it go anywhere? And I think that's the task of Satan. You know, how does Satan work? I just sat down this afternoon just for the fun of it, and I come up to 15 ways Satan works, how he uses people. He's called the prince of this world. They're called the prince. He deceives, he devours, he destroys, he decredits, discredits, lying, misquotes the word, impersonates, causes delays, creates doubts, discouragement, slander, inflicts pain and disease, distracts, blinds minds, and takes away the word. And he uses people to do it. Just think of that. Just think of, and I'm just kind of talking a little thing about things tonight about to be aware of. Of people that you wonder, what are they doing with my grandchildren? What are they doing in the school system? Do you think Satan just works with church people? No, he works with everybody. And to keep them down. So the devil works and he tramples, he sends in things and people to take it the, sweet, the seed away. And what happens, the seed doesn't have a chance to germinate. I know most of you have probably planted something. And you put it in the ground, and even if it's nice soil, you don't go out the next day to see, well, where's the crop? The seed has to germinate, has to take root hold before it even gets to root. And that's when Satan steps in and keeps the seed of God from germinating in the hearts of people. So that's the first kind of person. I'm going to bring it together at the end. But the second one I want to go to is the, uh, verse 13. In verse 13, it talks about the second. Those along the path, we looked about them. Now those on the rocks are the ones who receive the word with joy. When they hear it, they have no root. They believe for a while, but the time of testing, they fall away. These are the people, and they're, they're probably the ones that I have the most difficulty to really know how to quantify or qualify as. These are the people who receive the word with joy. I've, I don't know if we've been Christians so long that we forget what it was like when we received the word. I remember, I was 10 years old, and I walked down in the morning after I accepted with the pastor, I accepted Christ, and I walked down and I said, well, I really feel different. There's something happened. And my mom says, yeah, you met the Lord. And people are like that. They're looking for hope. They're looking, and you and I don't have to go far to find people who are in a lot of problems. In financial problems, special problems with needs, with finances, and, and we say to them, Jesus has the answer, don't we? He'll fix all your problems. Don't worry about it. God is the answer. I believe that. I do believe that. No question. But what happens is, why do they fall away? No, they had the joy, but now they fall away. Anyone idea? Well, what do you, how do you do with that? Because, no, I believe in election. You know, this kind of monkeys that all up because it says they had joy of the Lord and something happened that they just turned sour. 
And I think this, this is something that I, I'm, I'm really glad Dr. David preached what he did this morning because I'm, I'm hitchhiking right on the back of what he said about the church. I think two things are missing in the church with new believers. One is we don't tell them what they're getting into. We don't tell them they have to repent. They have to give up a lifestyle is not like Christ. And you just don't come to Christ to get hell insurance and have all the joy in the world and God's going to take you all the problems away. Poof. And I meet people like that. And what happens? Problems don't go away. You know, if you have a broken leg and you come to Christ, after you pray, you know what? Your leg is still broken. And what happens? These are rocks. Now, you ever wonder what the rocks are? There's no root. But what are the rocks that are in the life of a person? And I just share this with you because we're, we're involved in quite a bit of counseling. And what we do in counseling in one way is there's rocks in your life. There's anger. There's resentment. There's, these, are, these are rocks that are holding you back. And you don't even know it. And because you've got those, the roots don't go down because of those agitations you just can't get through. I had a man come to me once. His, his boss said, you got to go see me because I get an anger problem, he said. I get mad and I hit people. I get mad and I get angry. And, and uh, he's a Christian. He was a missionary. He was part of the organization. But he had this anger. So we talked for three or four sessions, and then I really find out that a lot of the damage that is done in our lives, the rocks that are placed in our lives, are placed in our lives before we're 12 years of age. Now, I can't back that up scientifically, but I look at people and we talk to people, and this man said to me, I said, when was one of your traumas? He said, I had this trauma when I was in the sixth grade. And I'm not going to go into what it was, but the teacher wouldn't let him do something that he needed to do, and he was so embarrassing, and the kids all laughed at him. And then he left school. It was in a mission school overseas, and it was only two blocks away. And he, little school, he went home and saw his dad and said, Dad, this is what happened to me. And his dad picked him up and said, you're going back to school. Put him in back in the class, and the kids all laughed at him again over this issue. And he said, I said to myself, I will hate that teacher the rest of my life. And I'm going to have to try and find forgiveness for what my dad did. Now, that's just one illustration of one time. But when he started to look at it, he says, you think that's the reason I treat authority the way I treat authority today? I just get angry with them? And I said, it probably is. That's a rock. You've got to get it out. And we all have rocks of some kind. And as long as they're there, the roots aren't going to go down. And Paul says, let your roots grow down into the deep soil. But the rocks won't let it go. So I, well, let me just finish with this because I think it's sometimes it may help you. He said, how do you get rid of the rocks? And I said, there's a lot of things, but I'd like to suggest one thing. We're going to pray. And first Peter tells us, you know, we could go to God. And I want you to vision in your mind a cross. And he said, that's no trouble. I remember places. Okay, close your eyes. Remember the cross. Now I want you to see yourself walking up the hill to the cross. Yeah, I can do that. Now I want to see you unloading that out of you that anger, that hostility, that desire to fight authority, I want you to just to lay that on the foot of Jesus on the cross and leave it there. Because he came to pay for that sin. And he's asking you to give it to him. He got the picture. And he did. And he comes in the next time and he says, guess what? God has healed me 
I don't have that anger. I can deal with people who ask me things to do that I don't want to do, and I say, well, okay. He said, God did that for me. And there's the people who have rocks, and all of us have had rocks at some time, and probably if we're really honest, we still have a few hanging around in there that has kept our roots from going as deep as we like to see them go. And so we look at the follower. You know, it's interesting. This is what I call sanctification. This is where people need to be discipled. You know, Billy Graham was asked once, of all the people that come forward, how many of them do you think really they go on and live with the Lord, live for the Lord, out of all those people that walk down? He said, at best, 10%. At best. D.L. Moody said once he was asked, if you divide Christianity up into percentages, how would you do it? He said, 5% salvation. 95% sanctification. Getting the rocks out, living for Christ, that's the work. Salvation, we do nothing but accept. But if people go in and just think, oh, it's just wonderful, God's going to fix me right up, uh-uh, it's going to be work. So sometimes we really don't inform them correctly. And then the second thing is, I think is critical, is discipleship. Now, you may disagree on this one, but when I read Matthew 28, it's a favorite verse. It's the commission to go. As I've studied it, and I've studied with other people who know the language better than I do, the scripture actually says, as you go, it doesn't say go. It says, as you go, because back in those days, everyone was going somewhere because of persecution. And as you go, go to the nations. Just don't go to Jews. Just don't go to the good people. Go to everybody, baptizing them, discipling them. Then the only verb in that passage is teach. That's why I believe in Sunday school. That's why I believe in a pastor that preaches the Bible. Because our people today are not getting teaching. They don't know their scriptures. And I think that's what happens to this person. It's, no more, it's just like taking a baby who's born and say, Yo, you're here, we love you, you're wonderful, go sit there and I'll see you later. I don't think it's possible for a new Christian to really make it without getting in a fellowship like this, meeting people, and being encouraged and discipled. That's just what David said this morning. We need the church. Let's look at the third one. The third one has to do with uh, distractions. Distractions. And the third one, he talks about they believe for a while, but then it says, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. This is a sad one, because this is the person who really thinks they want to walk with God and know how to work with God, and they really miss it. Notice the three things. First of all, it says they hear and they respond. So they, they go past the first two soils. First soil really never even hears it so hard. The second soil hears it and responds. But now the good soil here, or the, this soil here, it hears, but it's choked. And I don't know if you ever planted a garden it's choked by weeds. You know, I have grass in our house in Pennsylvania, and I can never understand why the weeds grow faster than the grass. You know, we plant flowers. I remember planting flowers once, and we went away for six weeks. I come back, I couldn't find the flowers. It was the weeds. And they choked out the flowers. You couldn't see the flowers. They were there, but the weeds got them, and the, the two different passages here put these three together. The cares of the world, deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for pleasure. 
between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get those three, you get that five combination. The cares are the worries of the world. Now, you never meet someone whose life call was to worry. You know, they're a little hard to live with because everything's a worry, everything's a worry. You heard about the man, he, his wife was a worrier. And every time they went on a trip, she'd get about 25 or even 50 miles away, and she says, oh, I left the oven going. We go, oh, I'm going to worry. Oh. So we got to go back and check the oven. And the next time they go, she says, oh, I think I left the bathroom faucet partly going. So they go back. So now in this one, she says, oh, oh, dear, 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 I left the iron going. Remember I ironed your shirt? I left the iron going. And he said, no, it's fine. No, it'll burn the house down. No, it won't. How do you know? Because the iron's in the back seat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's some people who just you know, worry, but there is a thing called anxiety. And anxiety is something you can control, but it's real. Worry is over stuff that probably will never happen. Anxiety is over things that have a potential to happen. And there is such a thing as concern. There's nothing wrong with being concerned. I remember the first night that my Son took out the car at 16 with the boys. A little, little anxiety there. I told him at 7 o'clock, I want you home by 7.30. You know, <laughs> no, a little longer than that. But th there is a sense of anxiety, but it doesn't control your life. What does Peter say to do with anxiety? First Peter 5, cast all your cares. Now, it doesn't mean you don't show concern. It means you don't have a concern about, but you don't spend your life worrying over it. And you're able to say, okay, I have some anxiety, but I can handle that anxiety and I can give it to the Lord. The other one is deceitfulness of wealth. It's interesting, that's what it says. Wealth, and it is deceitful. Uh, I remember when John D. Rockefeller was asked, richest man of the world at that time, 1900s. And it said, John D., you're the richest man in the world. What's it going to take? He said, it's just going to take a little bit more. Why is it? We want just a little bit more. And then we get satisfied. Then we want a little bit more. And I, I don't know. I think there's something about that where you want to improve. I don't know problem with wanting to get more education and so forth. But when it's a drive, it's a drive where there's no contentment. And I think that's the big issue. Paul says, I am content no matter what the situation. Sure, I would like more food because I'm hungry. And sure, I would like to have a better travel and have to walk 50 miles. But I'm content if God gives it to me, wonderful. If he doesn't, I accept it. But that drive to have a little bit more where you're never content, that causes a lot of people to get choked. And the other one is desire for pleasure. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this one. But a desire to pleasure... It's, it's, there's a difference between my need and my want. My need, God will supply. But my wants, God doesn't promise to supply. And a lot of the things that I want are basically pleasures. Do I really want I don't need them. I could get by without them. But I would like it. I'd like a boat. But I don't think that's what God wants me to have right now. But I want it. But I don't need it. And you can probably look at your life. And probably if the Lord has led you, there's times you didn't get it. Because you were, it was pleasurable, but it wasn't what God wanted for you at this time. And of course, Matthew 6.33 gives us the whole story that, that why do we worry about anything? God's going to take care of us. But three things, these are what really choke a person. And what happens when you get choked? It doesn't mature. 
The tree never produces fruit. That's what's wrong with the third one. It's still alive. It's a Christian. It's going. It's out there. It's doing the stuff. It's busy. But you know, Jesus always talked about a tree that only produced leaves. Think of that. How many Christians are going to get to heaven and say, look at me, look at me, and Jesus is going to say, yeah, you are a beautiful tree, great leaves, but no fruit. The third gets choked to a point that he doesn't bring out the fruit that God has asked him to bring because he's too busy. If God, you know, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. You ever find that out? Especially if you ever had a point in your life where you came to burnout. And I find a lot of Christians are burned out, and what do they do? They just don't care anymore. But that's because of this busyness. We think we've got to be busy, and God never says you've got to be busy. You've got to be walking with me, walking with me. And then just finishing up in the fourth one, the good soil. Now, what makes the soil good is not that I don't think it's better than the other three soils. I think it's all the same seed, all the same soil, but the last soil doesn't have any rocks that are slowing it down. It's not hard, it's receptive. It's not choked out with all the cares of the world. It's receiving the word and bringing fruit. And, you know, Jesus talked about that. He said, let your light so shine before men, they'll see your good works and glorify him. What is our number one goal in life? To glorify God. Paul says in Corinthians 1, everything you do, do in a way that pleases God and glorifies his name. John 15 is the one we all know probably the best. That's by the vine and the branches. And as you bear fruit, you bring glory to God. So Psalmist says to me, what's, what's your purpose in life? My purpose in life is to bring glory to God. When people see me, they say, why do you do that? And I say, because the love of God is in my heart, and this is what I want him to he wants me to do. Now, do you, have you ever explained to anyone <laughs> what does it mean to glorify God? Now, think of that. How would, just think of that. I wish, I wish we had time to talk. I would like to be interacting, but uh, I'm limited. And they limit me to this platform so they know I wander all over the room. So Don says, I'm going to fix you tonight. You don't get off the platform. <laughs> but... What does it mean to glorify God? I'll tell you what it means to me very simply. And, and you may call this a little crass. But for me to glorify God, my goal is to make God look good. My mother, when I went out at 16 and 17 and 18, she read one thing to me as I walked out the door. She'd remember, you're a Johnston. I know what that meant. I better not embarrass the name. I want my family to be a family of respect. And I want my God to be one that's respected and glorified and known. And so my goal is, I want to make God happy and please him. And I can think of nothing else, but I have to go back through and I have to admit, I got to get rid of a couple of rocks. There's times when part of this hardness of the heart, not the whole heart, there's a hardness in there that you don't want to get the Word of God into, for all kinds of reasons. And the good soil is just a soil that's working at keeping good that pleases God, and still working on keeping it like that. So there's a personal goodness, and someone says, well, what does it look like? And I always go back to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Someone says to you, are you filled with the Spirit? I believe I'm filled with the Spirit. How do you know you're filled with the Spirit? Not just because I have done something and prayed, but because I look for God's work in my life through the fruit. If I don't see changes in the fruit of the Spirit, in love, joy, kindness, peace, long-suffering, and those things, that I say, there's something not going wrong. I'm getting choked out. I'm, 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 I'm anxious. I'm worrying. I'm not producing the fruit. 
And I think that's how I, I look at how I know. And I've got, I've got uh, four minutes left. I want to talk about another thing that, that the Lord brought to my heart because in, in, I'm billing right on David's this morning. When he finished, I said, thank you. I'm going to have to say this. To me, the church ministry in life, for lack of a better word, is a team sport. It's not like golf. You can go play by yourself. Try to play football by yourself. You can't. It's a team. And I played a lot of team, played a lot of baseball and football and so forth in college, but we had a team, and when the team worked together, it was really great. Whether we won or lost, we didn't care. We just enjoyed being together, playing our positions, seeing what's going on, and most of the time we won because we had unity. We cared about each other. We played our position. We played our positions. And that's what I think the church is. The church is a team that plays together, works together, and in the process glorifies God. Now hold on to that because I'm going to put a little hook into that. I think my purpose for me personally in life is to find where God wants me to do what he's asked me to do. And that is like a little link in a chain. Seen the bicycle chain? I have joined the chain, and someone comes to me, and I realize they have been with someone else. And my task is to kind of keep it going, focus on God, and give it to the next person, the next link in the chain. And if the links do what they're supposed to do, that person moves. People used to ask me, how many people did you bring to Christ today or this week? I got in a college group, and that was the thing. We really got into salvation. We wanted to see at least three people one to Christ every week. And I, that was the goal. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I can get them to pray, but I don't know if they're converted. You know, that's no good. And I started to realize that my purpose in bringing people to Christ is there. That what pleases God. Jesus said, you will be what? Fishers. Of men, what does that mean? We're going to bring people to Christ. It's just not enough for me to produce fruit. As a church, we produce fruit. People come to Christ. If we play our position in that link and keep it going. I want to just end with this illustration. About, it was 1986, 87, we were still in... Uh, Lancaster, PA, and uh, I was seeing people, and uh, this person who was bringing Asian students over to America and placing them in our Christian homes in our church in Lancaster, PA, and there was about 40 students that come, they stay for the last two years of high school, and then go on for college. It was phenomenal. They'd learn English, they learn culture, they were prepared for college. Best way to do it. So they had this one student who was a really nice guy. He was as tall as Japanese I've ever seen. He was about six foot tall, handsome guy. And he had an anger problem that was beyond belief. So the head of the organization come and say, we're getting ready. No one can handle him. The dorm parents, the people want him. No one wants him in their home. We're getting ready to send him home. Would you see him? And I said, sure. So I had about five sessions and I told them, look, next session's our last session. Uh, we're leaving for Ecuador the following week for four years, and so we, we won't be back. I'd like to see you, but I'd like to see you one more time. He said, if I have to, because he, he was mandated to see me. And so, okay, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll see you. And he wasn't making any progress. He was, I was talking to his, I knew his family he was living with, solid Christian people. They had the heart of gold and they had the patience to just hang on. But what, he, what happened is, I said, Lord, what am I going to say to this kid that you can use? That's what I often think. Lord, what am I going to say that your spirit can use 
Because he needs something often to you so that he can take what you say and he can add that and open that to someone's heart. So what I said to this kid, I said, you know, I'm going to be gone. Won't see you for four years. But I'll tell you about your anger. Your anger is so bad you're going to ruin your life. You're so mad at your dad. What he had done in the Japanese family, the husbands are often abusive. Not all, often. But he was beating his wife very consistently. And finally, this kid was big enough, six foot tall, 16. He stopped in front one day and said, you don't beat mom anymore. And his father came after him with a stick. And he hauled off and smacked him and flattened him right in the floor. Then his father realized this kid's bigger and stronger than I am. But he said, I'm going to get rid of him. And he sent him to America. Now, that's his background. And that's, that's a hard heart. So I'm one cog in the whole thing. So I said, I want you to know that before you go, you're going to ruin your life. You may even take your life. You may even do something that will take them. Someone will take your life because your anger is so bad. But it's your choice. You're not hurting your dad. You're hurting no one. This anger is eating you alive. Now, that's your choice. I said, you know, I, I sleep. I don't, I don't stay up waking up all night wake, worrying about people. But you've got a choice to make. And it depends on your choice where you're going to end up, in the gutter or what God's called you to be. Never responded. Never said a word. Two weeks later, we shipped off to Ecuador. 18 years later, 18 years later, we were home from a trip overseas working with missionaries and happened to be home that Sunday. And someone ran up and said, there's someone here who wants to talk with you. He said, you saved his life. And I thought of swimming. Who did I pull out of the water that I saved their life? And as soon as he walked around the corner, he was the Japanese young man. And he'd come up and he hugged me and he said, you saved my life for the words you gave me. He said, I went back and I thought about them and God started to work in my heart and my home Paris led me to the Lord. And I went to high school top student. I went on to college, went on to seminary. And today he says, I'm in Tokyo pastoring a Christian and Missionary Alliance church and I'm head of the Evangelical Pastors Church of Japan. Thank you. I was one cog and another cog, and God just moves that. Some people say, how many people have you had brought to the Lord? I said, I don't know. I want to know how many people our church as a whole. And we'll never know. I've, that, the reason I think God gave that to me, because I wondered after all the stuff I'm dead and people I've talked to, did it make any sense? No. <laughs> did it go anywhere? And when you get someone who comes back and says, thank you for what you did 18 years ago, it makes me say, don't stop now. Don't stop now. Let God speak through you, and he'll take over. You know, it's the old saying, I witness in the power of the Holy Spirit and I let the Holy Spirit take it over. And he brings the next person along. And somewhere in this line, just remember, somewhere in this line, you may have something to say. You may be picking it up from someone else, and God will use you in this, and you'll pass it on, and that's your part in the salvation of this person. I had one little cog. The parents, the schools, the pastors, all of those people, we all did what needed to be done, and together, the church, universal, God did his work. And so I just leave this with you, that there's soils, it's different kind of soils. You could check your soil. But I, I share this, and one way you can use this is, when I witness, before I witness to anybody, I try to figure out what soil they are. And I had one when I first moved here, I sat up in the, the uh, center at, at uh, the, uh, on the um, island here, and I was talking to a man, and he said, are you new? I said, I'm new here. Yeah, just, it's, this is great. And he said, uh, 
Are you not one of those? <laughs> what do you mean, one of those? You don't go to church here, do you? Well, I'm going to. Or you don't talk to me, I'm atheist. You know? And I say, oh, oh, <laughs> I know where he is. I'm not going to try and talk about Jesus to him at this point. I listened to him. And when I left, I said, you know, thank you for sharing me, but I'd just like to leave one thought with you. No matter what you think, God loves you. And that's the most important thing you need to think about. And you walked away. Where's that going to go? I don't know. But I did what God put in my heart. But it is interesting to start to talk to people because if I talk with someone whose soil is great, people like in the church, we have a whole different conversation. But it still doesn't mean I can't bring encouragement and hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Lord that opens our hearts. And Lord, tonight we we just pray for those with hard hearts that are rebellious. I think of those who have issues in their hearts that uh, they just need help to unload and, and even to slow down and think about what they're doing. But Father, I thank you that no one is beyond your word and the work of your spirit. No one. Thus, we should be praying for everybody regardless of the soil. And I just pray that we'll first examine our soil, see what, if we're doing what you've asked us to do, and then, Lord, be sensitive to the place that you want us individually and corporately to pray, play in the process of bringing glory to your name, which is the only reason we are here. And thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.